Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav. Hello and welcome to Good Morning Canada. I'm your host, Navem, and welcome to another hour of Alternative Viewpoints. Student loan debt has become a social problem in many advanced countries that continues to affect both students and their long-term economic prospects in the future. Since the economic recession of 2008, there has been an abundance of news reports and commentary regarding the unsustainability of the college educational system, not only in America, but other countries around the world. Indeed, an entire generation now finds itself burdened with a disproportionate level of student debt and the uncertainties created by this highly competitive market. These problems have produced a fierce public debate over the last few years, with many foreseeing an imminent and catastrophic bubble collapse looming on the horizon. Stark headlines abound that people are paying off their student loans until the age of 55, and that the burgeoning student loan market is slowly approaching the staggering size of the US mortgage market. Indeed, student loan debt has now surpassed credit card loans and auto loans in the United States. Furthermore, rising levels of student debt are having a profound effect on younger borrowers and the broader economy, crowding out other investments, potentially slowing the growth of the economy and changing the pace at which young adults start families and buy homes. Furthermore, in recent decades, federal governments have pursued a consistent policy on student debt by shifting higher education costs onto students, removing any last illusions of university courses acting as conduits for social equity. The system has transformed from a publicly funded model to a publicly assisted model, and students have been forced to fill the void, such that higher education is no longer considered to be a luxury, but a required necessity to achieve a decent income. The imbalance of high tuition, high debt status discriminates against students unable to pay upfront costs and carry significant long-term economic and social consequences. So let's start by providing some context and reviewing the size of the student loan market. According to a recent report entitled Student Loan Debt Statistics from educationdata.org, dated March the 1st, 2022, the total student loans debt in the United States amounts to $1.749 trillion. And to put that into some perspective, this represents approximately 8% of the entire US economy based on 2021 GDP figures. Other highlights of the report include the following. Other highlights of the report include the following. The outstanding federal loan portfolio is over $1.61 trillion. 43.4 million borrowers have federal student loan debt, which equates to one in every four adults. And the number among millennials is even higher at one in three. The average federal student loan debt balance is 37,113. The average public university student borrows approximately $30,000 to attain a bachelor's degree. The average cost of college tuition and fees at public four-year institutions has risen 180% over the last 20 years, which represents an annual increase of 9%. So given these startling figures, the inevitable question which arises is this, is a university or college education worth it? 
And for those who question the value of college education in this era of soaring student debt, we only need to review the attitudes and experiences of today's millennial generation to arrive at a compelling answer. On virtually every measure of economic well-being, from personal earnings to job satisfaction to those in full-time employment, young college graduates are outperforming those members of the workforce with a lower level of education. Recent data shows that workers who have higher levels of education typically earn more and have lower rates of unemployment compared to those with less education. And this is according to data from the 2020 US Bureau of Labor Statistics, BLS Current Population Survey, which reports earnings and unemployment rates by education attainment. For instance, workers with a bachelor's degree had median weekly earnings of $1,305 in 2020, compared with $781 for workers with a high school diploma. And the unemployment rate for bachelor's level employees was 5.5% compared with 9% for those whose highest level of education was a high school diploma. Furthermore, around 30% of all American adults were saddled with student debt according to a report by the Federal Reserve Board of Governors entitled Student Loans and Other Education Debt, dated January the 3rd, 2022. This figure reflects the growing importance of a college degree in getting a well-paid job and also reflects just how much college costs have increased. For many Americans, footing the bill through savings and investments simply isn't feasible anymore which means more students and families are relying on loans to pursue higher education, while the average student loan debt continues to grow. Moreover, the student loan debt crisis is compounded by the number of borrowers falling delinquent on their loans. As of the fourth quarter of 2019, 11.1% of student loan borrowers were 90 days or more delinquent on their loans. This suggests that a substantial number of borrowers are struggling to keep up with their loan payments. And similarly, if we look at figures on student debt in Canada, this reveals equally startling data. As of the 2016-2017 school year, Canada Student Loans, CSL, administered a portfolio of 18.2 billion Canadian dollars in loans in relation to more than 1.7 million borrowers, according to figures from debt relief experts, Hoyes Mikalos. This figure represents only government loans, but the total debt figure of public and private debt is estimated to be around 28 billion. In 2018, student debt accounted for more than one in six insolvencies, or 17.6% in Ontario, Canada's most populous province under the Canada Student Loans Program, CSLP. In addition, a student with $30,000 in debt can expect to pay an additional $10,320 in interest over 10 years. According to economist Marshall Steinbaum, assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah, who's been studying the structure of student loans in detail, a large proportion of borrowers are not making any progress in paying off their loans while the amount outstanding grows steadily over time. Based on his most recent study, the Millennial Student Debt Project 2020 to 2021, 
And as Steinbaum writes, student debt is similar to an overflowing bathtub because too much debt is pouring in and not enough is being paid off. Loans are getting steadily older over time and not being paid off. In 2019, over 22% of loans were more than 10 years old, which represents the entire repayment term or period. So given that a greater share of borrowers are making small or no payments, let's now take a brief look at whether certain borrowers are more affected by the debt crisis. Point number one, there is definitely a marked racial bias because the share of loans in mainly minority zip codes with rising balances was 61.6% compared with 49.5% in majority white zip codes. Point two, women are more prone to the student loan debt pain. According to an analysis by the American Association of University Women, AAUW, women owe nearly two thirds of student loan debt in the US, totaling almost $929 billion compared to men. Women are more likely to finance a college degree and they tend to borrow more money to do so. However, the student loan debt crisis becomes more acute when the same female graduates have to start repaying their loans. The gender pay gap prevents women from making the same progress in paying off their loans as men. As of 2019, women working full-time earned approximately 82% of what men are paid. A lower income means less money to apply to student loan debt. For instance, within the first four years after graduation, men paid off an average of 38% of their outstanding debt, according to the AAUW, while women paid off 31%. Point three, minorities also bear the brunt of student loan debt. Women are not alone in the student loan struggle, according to the National Center for Education Statistics. 71% of black students use federal loans to pay for attendance at four-year colleges, compared to 56% of white students. According to the AAUW, Hispanic and black students are more likely to graduate with higher levels of debt than white students. This group has a slower debt repayment rate and they're also more likely de to default on their loans. Black women in particular take on more student loan debt on average than any other group. 34% of women overall and 57% of black women who were repaying their student loans reported being unable to meet their essential expenses within the past year. So clearly certain groups in society are more vulnerable to higher student indebtedness, but is there a broader economic impact? Well, student loan debt affects not only the individual borrower, but also impacts the wider national economy. For instance, although the housing market has made a strong recovery since the 2008 recession, overall student loan debt has a lagged effect on home ownership rates by an estimated seven years, according to a 2017 report entitled Student Loan Debt and Housing Report from the National Association of Realtors. This causes imbalances in supply and demand, especially if there is more inventory for sale but fewer buyers available to purchase. In addition, student loan borrowers may be more reluctant to use other forms of credit, such as credit cards or auto loans, because their credit rating may be impaired or perhaps they are hesitant to increase their debt load. Hence, any slowdown in consumption, such as fewer people buying cars or homes, means less spending via credit cards. And this directly affects businesses and has the potential to slow down economic growth. 
Furthermore, there are other factors at work which have contributed to the crisis in student indebtedness that became more evident after the 2008 recession. In particular, a fundamental change in higher education funding in the United States. And as we progress through this episode, the main argument that I wish to put forward is that the ideology of neoliberalism can explain the decline in state funding to colleges and universities and the subsequent cost increases which have been produced. I will argue that various neoliberal assumptions have manifested in a model referred to as students as commodities, thereby creating a new conventional wisdom on how higher education is implemented. Indeed, the students as commodities model helps to explain the fourfold increase in tuition fees since the 1970s. I will also examine the contentious argument between education as a public and a private good and the subsequent financialization of higher education as crucial drivers of cost increases. By doing so, it sheds light on how society views the funding of higher education, but more importantly, how government and corporate business have changed perceptions about higher education and the modality of funding. But let's start by first asking what are the underlying causes of the student debt crisis? The driving force behind this explosion in higher education costs is the long-term disinvestment in public colleges and universities at the state level. While public higher education institutions account for the majority of new undergraduate enrollments since 1990, there has been a marked reduction in the proportion of state spending on higher education. According to data released by the US Department of Education, for the fiscal years 2002 to 2019, state and federal support has declined as a share of overall revenue, placing a greater burden on students at more than 1,500 public colleges and universities. This data is consistent with a report released in May 2015 by the public policy think tank Demos entitled pulling up the higher ed ladder, stating, higher education funding cuts are responsible for 79% of tuition fee increases. Moreover, between 1990 and 2010, real funding per public full-time enrolled student declined by over 26%. This shortfall has not been filled by other sources of public funding, but compensated by a marked increase in students' out-of-pocket costs. Over the same period, tuition fees at four-year public colleges and universities rose by 112.5%, while the price of public two-year colleges increased by 71%. And because household incomes have stagnated over the past two decades, students and their families have been compelled to turn to student loans to cover these costs. And as a quick comparison, according to US Department of Education figures, 45% of 1992-93 to graduates borrowed money from federal or private sources, whereas today at least 67% or two-thirds of graduates enter the workforce with a heavy student debt load. Furthermore, according to a 2019 report from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, CBPP, the average tuition between 2008 to 2018 at four-year public colleges increased significantly in all 50 states, directly after the recession 2008. The research team found that funding for higher education has not rebounded to pre-recession levels in most states and that college costs are rising as a result. 
And on average, tuition at these schools has increased by 37%. And net costs, including factors such as scholarships and grants, have increased by 24%. Michael Mitchell, lead author of the report, commented, quote, Nearly every state has shifted the responsibility of funding higher education from the state to students over the last 25 years, with the most drastic shift occurring in the past decade. Coincidentally, the lack of state support for public universities came at a time when creditors were heavily targeting student loans as a long-term revenue source. Similar to credit cards and subprime mortgages, there was great interest in offering loans to students, in particular those from low-income families because of the huge amount of profit to be made in this venture. In student loans, banks found the ideal niche market by selling debt to a receptive and lucrative student market and are reluctant to relinquish it. Consequently, by making structural changes to the labour market and changing perceptions of higher education as a private, not public good. This has created a perfect scenario to facilitate credit as an integral component of the wider political economy. Point two, the second underlying cause is debt has become a commodity. So in a global market, the buying and selling of debt has eclipsed many other financial streams in achieving sustainable profit. It is a proven strategy that requires collusion at both political and economic level, i.e. banking deregulation coupled with receptive targets for credit. And there is also an added dimension, which relies on political apathy from state or federal legislators, and of course, a level of financial ignorance among borrowers to keep the whole enterprise moving. The author, Andrew Ross, in his 2014 book, Creditocracy and the Case for Debt Refusal describes the current system of debt governance as one ruled by a creditor class, so much so that 77% of US households are seriously indebted and one in seven Americans have been pursued by debt collectors. The major banks are bigger and more profitable than before the 2008 crash and state legislators are essentially powerless to bring them under control. Ross describes the modern economic state as one in which debt is used to pay for everyday essentials and basic needs such as food, housing, medical care and education. This trend is compounded by the fact that the debt itself has become a product by which to extract profit. Ross refers to so-called revolvers or those who can barely afford to make payments on their debt. These people are the ideal customers for financial institutions because they are more lucrative to lenders than those who make payments on time because essentially revolvers will continue to accumulate late fees and therefore interest rate charges. So this makes debt itself a commodity as it can be bought and sold just like tangible items and just like auto loans and credit card debt, student loans can be converted into new financial instruments called asset-backed securities or ABS. The clearest example of the commodification of university education is the process by which student debt is converted into student loan asset-backed securities or slabs for short. A commodity that can be traded on the stock market and let's not forget that student debt is not readily convertible to cash. It cannot be sold on its own because it has to be converted first into a tradable financial security using a process called securitization. 
And so the financialization of student debt is almost never reported in the media. And equally, there is little public awareness that when students take out loans, their debts will be repackaged into a new financial asset and sold on to investors. The student loan industry has spawned a $200 billion market for slabs. And this is a circular business model, which involves funds flowing between lenders like Sally May and big banks like Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Similar to mortgages, student loans are pooled and then repackaged into new financial products or securities. The lenders then sell the securities to investors. Investors are compensated by a monthly income stream from the loan payments plus interest, and they can hold the securities themselves or they can trade them or even bet on them. In return, lenders receive quick cash including fees and commissions, and push the risk of the underlying loans onto investors. This allows lenders to make more and even bigger loans. And also, let's not forget, ancillary companies also make a profit in this process from student loan debt in the United States, including government-contracted debt collectors, debt services, refinance lenders, and also firms that help former students stay out of default. According to Andrew Ross, the sale of slabs made Sally May $13.8 billion in 2012. However, overall risk lies strictly with the borrower because even defaulted loans can be made profitable. He writes, quote, The capacity of lenders and investors to treat education as a profit center is arguably the most telling symptom of creditor power. The use of higher education to extract economic rents and foreclose students' futures has been an emerging principle of governance for more than three decades now, with stark consequences for the political disposition of young people." End quote. Essentially, financing higher education via debt becomes a form of economic control through late payment penalties. Also, by using debt collection agencies, this represents a form of coercion because the true nature of this type of debt is not fully explained at the point of transaction. However, to avoid the negative stigma of this financial reality, a cultural rhetoric is constructed and propagated, convincing students and their families that college is a social necessity. And this is something that will be discussed later in the episode. But furthermore, this Investment will be validated with the social flattery of creditors eager to lend, in addition to political actors more than willing to authorise such a transaction. And very briefly, let's look at two other causes of the student debt crisis. Point three, the cost of living. While the decline in state funding is a major factor, another significant point is the cost of living. In the United States, cost of living has increased steadily, particularly over the previous decade. College students are also affected by these increases because many American students choose to move away from home and to live on or near campus. In addition, the added cost of living impacts how much colleges spend on their employees. For instance, healthcare costs paid by employers increased significantly over the past decade. Point four, other expenses. A common criticism leveled against colleges and universities is their tendency to spend on frivolous luxuries such as health spas, gymnasiums, and entertainment venues for students to attract them as potential clientele. 
However, in reality, this kind of spending is rare. According to the think tank Demos in their 2015 report, which was mentioned earlier, they estimate that only 6% of tuition increases were caused by spending on construction and 5% were caused by administrative bloat, which essentially refers to additional costs associated with hiring part-time and full-time staff in areas such as admissions. In light of the unprecedented numbers of university applications, some increase in, in spending in these areas is inevitable. So having reviewed the main causes of the student debt crisis, this discussion reminds us that students are placed in an almost impossible situation, a case of damned if you do, damned if you don't. In other words, by following a non-higher education path, individuals face the risk of economic domination, being tied to a low-wage job for the rest of their working life, with little prospect for skills improvement, unless, of course, they pursue an apprenticeship or some other form of paid learning, such as on-the-job experience. And equally, by pursuing a path of higher education, individuals are subjected to a different form of economic bondage, the inability to escape their various debt burdens, which originated from their initial student loan. And so at this point, I'd like to provide a short introduction to how modern student lending practices developed over time. I'd like to review this in five key steps because this not only helps to visualize the transformation of university loans from a public to a private good, but also offers some clarity towards the important economic arguments at stake. Step one, early higher education was considered to be a public good. During the 19th century, college education in the United States was offered largely for free. Colleges trained students from middle-class backgrounds as high school teachers and ministers and community leaders. And after their graduation, these individuals would use their education to serve public needs, putting it towards the betterment of society. Therefore, as a public good, society was willing to pay for it, either by offering college education free of charge or by providing tuition scholarships to individual students. Step two, college education as a private pursuit. The perception of higher education changed dramatically around 1910. Private colleges began to attract more students from upper-class families, as students began attending college for the social experience and not necessarily for learning. This social and cultural change led to a fundamental shift in the defined purpose of a college education. What was once a public good designed to advance the welfare of society was becoming a private pursuit for personal reward and advancement. In particular, enjoying the social status of private colleges to obtain a respected professional position upon graduation. Step three, the federal student loan system. US federal student lending actually began in earnest after the Soviet Union launched the Sputnik satellite in 1957, marking the beginning of the space race between the two Cold War superpowers. And this one act surprised the United States, sending political shockwaves to the US administration because it brought into focus exactly how much resources the Soviet were allocating towards education. And in response, and to help springboard America's education system, Congress began the process of passing what later became the National Defense Education Act, 
NDEA of 1958. The program was designed to be a short-term measure and was initially met with suspicion, especially in relation to the foresight of saddling students with debt. However, as loan programs grew more commonplace and widely utilized, they would contribute to a changing dynamic in public higher education that would stray from its original objectives. And the universality of loans combined with state budgets struggling to fund Medicaid and a booming prison industry led to a gradual retreat from educating low-income students. Step four, the 1960s and a move towards loans for all students. After the NDEA, Congress advocated to make college education available to all students. Subsequently, Congress passed the Higher Education Act of 1965. One portion of the act allowed for state agencies and commercial lenders to be part of the process of financing higher education in America, the Guaranteed Student Loan Program, GSLP, that emerged from this legislation was originally designed to reach lower and middle income student families. The purpose of the GSLP was to provide access to credit from commercial lenders, and the program accomplished this in two ways. Firstly, the federal government insured lenders against the borrower defaulting on their loans. And secondly, the government convinced states to set up their own guarantee program through interest-free advances. But the program soon morphed into a classic example of crony capitalism by privatizing profits and absorbing losses through the taxpayer. And that's because for most of the loans program history, the federal government did not lend directly to students. Congress outsourced this part to a new government agency called Sally May, which was able to borrow at rock bottom interest rates. This type of financial entity was unprecedented at the time because only the US government could borrow so cheaply. And in a fateful foreboding of the subprime mortgage crisis, Sally May flooded banks with cheap cash, purchasing student loans directly or lending to banks using student loans as collateral. This complex setup provided banks with a green light to make as many student loans as possible. And although the system enabled many young people with limited means to attend college, it also meant the student loan default soared as did college tuition fees. Sally May and the banks earned huge profits from the scheme, but universities gradually evolved into self-serving interest groups by employing a growing number of lobbyists to further their own cause. Decades after Congress created the modern student loan program, tuition fees increased well in excess of inflation rates. Moreover, due to the influx of cheap federal loans and by propagating the well-rehearsed rhetoric that higher education was a golden ticket to economic prosperity, universities found that students were more than eager to pay even as they raised tuition year after year rather than offering education at the lowest price. Schools began to compete on rankings, reputation, and campus amenities. It was a vicious cycle that drove costs higher and higher. Step five, creating the modern loan program. During the 2007-2008 financial crisis, a number of major banks collapsed, causing financial markets to go into a tailspin, eventually leading to a deep global recession. As credit markets tightened, making access to capital more difficult, the student loan market was heavily impacted by the subsequent credit crunch. The funds that students required to attend college simply dried up and the capital that banks used to finance loans through the Federal Family Education Loan Program or FELP 
became scarce. Consequently, many lenders that once participated in FHELP were forced to withdraw from the program and ceased to make any further loans as FHELP became more reliant on taxpayer funds. And what this meant was the subsequent loan purchases were costing the government more than if they'd actually issued the loans themselves. And therefore, a major review of the FHELP system began. In 2008, the US government authorised the Department of Education to buy loans from the various financial institutions that had initially created them. And as a result, the Guaranteed Student Loan Programme, GSLP, ended in 2010 when Congress removed the middleman and instead of guaranteeing student loans through private banks, the federal government now began lending to students directly. And this was made possible by passing the Healthcare and Education Reconciliation Act of 2010, or the HCERA. So having outlined the transformation of student debt from public to private good over the past century, this serves as a timely reminder that like many social conditions, the structure of the student loan debt is not something which appeared overnight. Moreover, the gradual development of student debt means that those individuals attending college or university have been influenced by a level of social control that questions the very function of higher education. In light of the debate between public and private good, I'd now like to concentrate on the ideology of neoliberalism because its doctrines are central to understanding the changing role of credit, not just for the payment of everyday items, but how society has been manoeuvred into using debt as a means of paying for education as well. But first, let's consider a very brief primer on neoliberalism. A brief outline of the policy directions of neoliberalism are as follows. The importance of the price mechanism and free markets, free enterprise, a system of unhindered competition and a strong and impartial state. David Harvey in his 2007 book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism states, quote, neoliberalism is a theory of political and economic practices, proposing that Human well-being can be advanced by liberating individual entrepreneurial freedoms and skills within an institutional framework characterized by strong private property rights, free markets and free trade. David Harvey argues that neoliberalism gained legitimacy in the West following the election of monetarist-style politicians such as Margaret Thatcher in the UK, whose central mandate was to curb the power of the unions and legislate greater financial deregulation. Similarly, the election of Ronald Reagan set the US on course to curb the power of organized labor, deregulate industry, and liberate the financial system on a global scale. From these political epicenters, the new message which reverberated in the corridors of power was that the era of welfare and income security were over ushering in the neoliberal ideology of fend for yourself. By 1979, it had become economic orthodoxy. By the mid-1990s, it was firmly established even among Democrats, as illustrated by President Clinton's healthcare reform proposal and later becoming the cornerstone of George W. Bush's administration. And as the dictates of market efficiency grew in scope to include the provision of services traditionally thought to be the role of government, such as utilities and key infrastructure. It created an opportunity for individual agency and self-sufficiency to establish itself without the need for government oversight. 
Hence, neoliberal ideology simply required any entity which received government funding to justify and advocate its existence in economic terms. Market forces dictated all institutional behaviour and favoured individualism as opposed to collectivism in subservience to the marketplace. And with this brief introduction, we can now start laying the groundwork for applying neoliberal ideology to today's subject matter of student loans. Firstly, in relation to the commodification of higher education. Any discussion of higher education and student debt needs to be placed in context within a broader understanding of the turn towards neoliberalism as a political ideology and financialization as a set of independent economic policies. During the 1970s, the financial elites and policymakers throughout the advanced capitalist countries pursued what is now a familiar strategy. They set out to destroy the power of organized labor, unleash the financial sector through deregulation and incorporate large swathes of the population into the complex circuitry of finance by expanding access to credit. And this last point of a philosophical shift towards the expansion of credit in order to create a debt-laden society was a cornerstone of the neoliberal project. The consequences of this shift have been profound, overturning previous relationships between workers and employers and redefining the social contract between citizens and the state. As author Gerald Davis explains in his 2011 book, Managed by the Markets, How Finance reshaped America, we now live in a portfolio society whose guiding force is the presence of finance. Davis argues how finance replaced manufacturing as the center of the American economy and how its influence has infiltrated everyday life from corporations designed to generate shareholder value to banks that become portals to financial markets to governments seeking to regulate or profit from free-flowing capital, also to households with savings, pensions and mortgages that fluctuate with the market. Life in post-industrial America is tied to finance to an unprecedented degree. Also included amongst this list is education, which is now viewed as a form of human capital rather than a social good. An investment asset in the individual's personal economic portfolio rather than a component of universal citizenship. Furthermore, student debt is now a private cost which one must pay in order to gain access to the conveyor belt of upward mobility. And ironically, this has become one of the most risky investments within that portfolio. The neoliberal transformation has led to a sea change in attitudes towards higher education, and this transformation stems from the way society now conceptualizes education and its modality of fun funding. For instance, students are viewed as consumers of a commodity called higher education. This approach suggests that education is a private rather than a public good due to the financialization of higher education. And it is this process of commodification which has contributed to the rising cost of higher education. It also argues that a neoliberal framework and its assumptions have become firmly embedded in public policy. The aim is to create a conventional wisdom or rhetoric to influence the various forms of public discourse, arguing that any push towards higher education is a necessary form of progress. And the point just mentioned about rhetoric is, 
is a key point because it helps to explain how the modern version of the student loan program was successfully embedded within public perception. But I'll return to this point shortly. Let's first consider how neoliberalism infiltrated the higher education system in the United States. And the first point is to begin with the concept of inequity. Current cultural norms are designed to convince the individual and wider society that university degrees are crucial for economic stability of the national and global economy. These public institutions, along with earlier elite private schools, gravitated towards capitalist growth and the self-interest of the ruling class through social or economic advancement. Industrialization brought a variety of changes to the economy and middle-class families sought to benefit from this by viewing higher education as a way for future generations to join an emergent professional class. Therefore, from the outset, the higher education system was always built on a system of inequity because American universities and colleges have always focused on providing a private benefit to the individual to expand the interests of capital accumulation and the broader political economy. Essentially, the American university was designed to be an engine of economic growth, but its achievements were always measured within a wider civic remit. And with the coming of the Great Society, the American University sought to extend its public mission through government-backed, low-interest grants and loans to attract a wider cross-section of students and thereby contribute to a greater social mo mobility among the population. And this historical process of higher education serving the elites through greater universal access still continues to the present day and serves to reinforce the concept of inequity. The financial system ensures the maintenance of inequity via oppressive student debt loads and default rates falling most heavily on students of colour. In addition, the shift from a needs-based system to merit-based assistance has contributed to the accrual of student debt rather than receipt of grant aid. Furthermore, students of colour and those from low-income backgrounds are more likely to accrue debt and subsequently default on it. This means it is the costs of higher education in the form of student debt which perpetuates economic inequality rather than any form of economic benefit. And point two, the use of rhetoric in promoting the golden ticket of higher education. So in today's results-driven society, individuals cite economic concerns as the main reason for pursuing higher education. And this drive towards pursuing a degree is interpreted as an inevitable result of market forces under the neoliberal framework. Educational purpose over the last few decades has been engineered as a means to create specific workers for specific jobs. This form of rhetoric is reinforced by business leaders arguing that there is a constant skills gap in the United States and new hires need specialised training accessed only through higher education to become successful in the workplace. Policymakers and legislators have responded to calls from the corporate sector that college and career readiness, i.e. the skills gap argument, are a vital first step to provide individual students with a high quality of life as they transition towards the labour market. We only have to refer to President Barack Obama's many speeches about the value of education to individuals and society. And here is an excerpt from Obama's speech on education at Wakefield High School 
in Arlington, Virginia, dated Tuesday, September the 8th, 2009. Quote, and no matter what you want to do with your life, I guarantee that you'll need an education to do it. You want to be a doctor or a teacher or a police officer. You want to be a nurse or an architect, a lawyer or a member of our military. You're going to need a good education for every single one of those careers. Your education will decide nothing less than the future of this country. What you're learning in school today will determine whether we as a nation can meet our greatest challenges in the future. And so from this type of speech, from a highly credible source, it, it's designed with economic purpose in mind by convincing students of the value of education. However, this form of rhetoric also serves to affirm a binary perspective by paying for their own education. Students not only benefit through their own economic welfare, but strengthen the political economy of the state, albeit via greater financialization. So by using the authoritative channel of rhetoric or speech, tuition and student loans become accepted and legitimized becoming part of the economic fabric of higher education. But this raises an important question. If policymakers and corporate leaders are keen to convince the population at large about the economic value of debt, at what point does the neoliberal system begin to educate its citizens about this high value approach? Well, the answer is that neoliberal orientation towards higher education actually begins in the kindergarten to grade 12 system or K-12 for short. To this end, let's examine how neoliberalism established a base in the K-12 education system. The key point to note is the domination by market forces because neoliberalism uses a system of accountability to regulate the K-12 system. In the neoliberal framework, the only areas which should be given consideration are those items which can be measured or quantified. Educational outcomes are usually quantified in terms of test scores, league tables, and the value added to the education system. And to further pursue the goal of financial efficiency in public schools, education leaders use management techniques taken from for-profit businesses. In an environment of constant austerity, educational expenditure can be decreased in the name of efficiency and accountability, requiring that schools do more with less. The government can then attribute blame towards the schools if they're unable to meet these very objective metrics of achievement. And similarly, neoliberalism applies the same methodology to the higher education system because Students are viewed as consumers making rational and informed decisions with the aim of participating in the higher education market and to acquire a sought after qualification. From this viewpoint, daily life is translated as pure economic activity. All pursuits, whether professional, commercial or educational must be assessed for their economic value alone. In other words, to secure the most profit attainable based on the student's economic value. For example, those students that choose a degree which might not be translated into a valuable occupation such as music or philosophy will be demerited according to society's values based on judgment or bias. Compare this situation to that of a highly sought after profession such as a doctor, lawyer, accountant or software engineer who wouldn't receive any form of judgmental bias because of the relatively high economic value of their chosen career. 
Essentially, higher education is a commodity that students as consumers buy and institutions as businesses sell, similar to a car or a computer. It becomes a business contract. The, the college or university must honour the contractual relationship by providing students with a proper return on their investment. Likewise, the student must honour the, their end of the bargain by maintaining regular loan payments. And neoliberal policies employ the efficiency of market forces to create an environment of minimal government regulation and interference. Rather than the government policing public goods, the market oversees the, the goods and services. Neoliberalism encourages people to operate in ways that maximize their efficiency and therefore their ability to generate profit. And this is done without any interference from government, which means that individuals become solely responsible for their economic decision. For instance, a four-year degree course is equated to a future projection of success in the job market. And so the government's role is to generate the optimal conditions to ensure maximum efficiency and purpose. One example is the use of indicators such as university ranking systems to evaluate the efficiency of the commodity. And from this discussion, we've already clearly established that the primary purpose of higher education is to optimize efficiency and maximize profit. This narrow frame of reference is designed to create an unlevel playing field, i.e. an environment in which inequity is promoted, therefore boosting the efficiency of the governing neoliberal model. And in the long run, it's the invisible hand of inequity which breeds corruption and creates spillover effects into other areas of the economy. And let's now take a brief look at some possible spillover effects of commodifying debt within the student loan industry. Effect one, exerting social power via student loan asset-backed securities or slabs, which were mentioned earlier. Although the student debt industry is presented as an efficient and socially beneficial use of finance, it relies on a system of unequal and exploitative power relations. The slabs are designed to reduce financial risk for private lenders, while also transferring the social dimensions of risk onto student debtors via late payments and defaults. Therefore, credit entails not only social power over time, but it is in effect a gamble with the future lives of student debtors. The power relations in the credit system are rarely discussed in debates about student loans because the narrative presented is that of economic participants entering into a fair and productive exchange. However, once a transaction becomes financialized, it represents nothing more than one line on a balance sheet. The student loan is a liability for the debtor, which then becomes an asset for the creditor. And once the asset exists in the form of a commodity, it can be owned or controlled to produce value, example, interest or commission or fees, etc. Effect two, the controversial issue of private funding. The funding cuts to higher education have pushed universities to seek private funding from a variety of sources. And these include corporate sponsorships and partnerships, the contracting out of teaching courses and also zealous marketing on campuses, among other items. In addition, many university residences are developed as prime real estate projects through public-private partnerships, or P3s, which the university then leases back from the developer. 
student life has been intensely commodified with campus retail sites being upgraded to compete with off-campus outlets, as well as the construction of retail malls on campus to capture student spending. Increasingly, university bookstores now dedicate less floor space to selling books and focus instead on selling a variety of branded merchandise, including university t-shirts, hats, pens, coasters, etc. Student loans have become an entry point onto the Ferris wheel of credit, introducing students to a perpetual life of debt existence. The easy availability of credit validates borrowing as a socially acceptable experience. By exchanging it for basic student needs, such as housing, travel and tuition fees, but also to reinforce a consumption-oriented student experience. Effect three, the human costs of commodification. The growth of student consumer culture has led to the wholesale conversion of large sections of cities as student haunts through the redevelopment in the form of bars, restaurants, nightclubs, fast food outlets and various other retailers which have adapted to this lucrative niche market. But more worryingly, sex workers are also an established part of this consumer culture with the steady rise of strip clubs in many student-dominated cities. In addition, students are actually participants in this industry, both as consumers and as sex workers. Academic and researcher Sarah Lance has reported extensively on this issue using data from Melbourne, Australia. Another recent example comes from Toronto, Canada, where, according to an online article from the CanadianBazaar.com dated January 2nd, 2022, sex traffickers habitually target female international students from India at college campuses, workplaces and other social settings. And although many female students become involuntary victims of human trafficking, others enter into the trade willingly in a desperate attempt to pay for tuition fees. So let's wrap up today's episode with some overall conclusions. We've established during the course of this episode how the influence of a neoliberal agenda has impacted university education, in particular how it has been used to justify large price hikes in tuition fees. Neoliberalism has become the dominant political and economic ideology of our time, establishing the policies of government and international institutions around the world. The transformation of this ideology has become well documented by influential authors such as David Harvey, Naomi Klein and Noam Chomsky. The core principles of neoliberalism were meant to oppose the concentration of power, but in reality the ideology has largely ignored the growing power of corporations to coerce governments into serving the corporate sector. And on the issue of student debt as a tool of economic power, neoliberal policies have created a perpetual debt industry which has had profound social and emotional effects on students worldwide. Neoliberal policies have redefined higher education as a private good, creating new purpose in the form of a loyal and obedient workforce. And this has been demonstrated via the accountability argument in both K-12 and in higher education, demonstrating that education is assigned a value only if its economic worth can be measured in quantifiable outcomes. Neoliberal educational policies do not promote equitable access to higher education. Instead, free markets are supposed to regulate and solve any problems through market efficiency. And finally, if higher education is a purely economic transaction, then what are the alternatives? 
One possible solution is to focus not on economic value, but educational value. In other words, create an alternative perspective of education in terms of the sovereignty of education and what can be achieved via critical thinking, community involvement and pursuing the collective good. Perhaps a shift in the modality of higher education could lead to further thought on what education should look like as opposed to who it should benefit. And this involves going beyond the parameters of the classroom and pursuing qualifications as neoliberal badges of honour. Instead, what if the real purpose of education is actually learning? And that's all we have time for in today's episode. Many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada. I really appreciated your company today. And as always, I'll see you next time, Wednesdays, 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.